Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, everybody, here we go. Welcome to West Point, Mississippi. Man, it just isn't the same without the Mac effect it on the front end. He no, has that. He has that electric sound. He does. He gets Can we trademark that voice? Yeah, I know it. Well, it's ours. It's ours. You know, he's uh, he's on the payroll. So yeah. But welcome, oh, he everybody. is. I thought he did it because he loved it so much. Well, it's kind of both. A mix. What do you say, <laughs> yeah. Mac? Uh, you can hire me out to do voiceovers, but uh, just send the checks to Mossy Oakland Enhancement Services. That'll work. That's my boy. I like that. <laughs> He's pretty good in politics, too, yeah, by the way. Team player. Yes, sir. Team player. Max's wife is going to be upset when she hears that he didn't say send that check to my wife. Yeah. Oh, spoken yeah. from a position a of authority man. right yeah, there, too. Right. True married yeah. man. That's right. Well, let me kind of set the stage, everybody. So today we're going to – we've got uh, – a really interesting podcast. Yeah. We're going to be talking to the president of the of the, the uh, uh, Coastal Conservation that's Association. Right. That's right. CCA, as I've CCA. heard about it all my yes, life. Right. That's Me right. Too. Been around a long time, and so when we've got Neil Hayes will be with us as well, and He's I'm sure we're going to hit the horns for Neil. He is definitely the Hayes family. Salt consultant, yes. Yes. Yeah, so now, no, no, spare the horns. I didn't want to get it to his head. <laughs> We're officially a surf and turf podcast. Whoa, yeah, look at you, dude. Yeah. yeah. Sand and land. Yeah, oh, that's us. Oh, my okay. only sand, well, is surf and turf. My sand is like yeah. chufa patches. <laughs> Not the sugar sand beaches of the coast. Yeah, turkeys do like those. Uh, they can scratch them up in that sand. They sure can. Yeah. Well, I love the salt water, too, so I'm excited to talk today about it. That's yeah. for sure. Oh, Lanny is big time. Half well, crab. Let me go ahead. Uh, <laughs> our guest is probably sitting there going, what in what, the what world? What have I gotten into? Got? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so our guest is Pat Murray. There he is. Pat, we are so happy to have you on here. And uh, we, as we were telling everybody, that, that what you guys uh, – this, the whole CCA story is just fascinating. We appreciate what you guys are doing to uh, help preserve some of these coastal situations and the, and the, and the fish and, and, uh, that are it's in amazing. these. The resource is hugely important. It's a great story it and a great really model is. for all conservation to see the results. Because I am old enough to remember, it's like uh, Ace, whatever, B.C. and A.D. I can remember before CCA and then after CCA. So I know the difference. Yeah, a stark difference, and what a difference it's made through their history. So, yeah, great conservation story. Well, Pat, thank you for being here. Oh, it's it's my honor. I mean, and honestly, I'll I'll go right back at you all. But you know, having 
platforms like this that are talking about conservation, be it inland or coastal, this is really what it's all about. I mean, that's in a lot of ways, the essence of what made CCA successful is having folks really tell stories about how you can make a difference from the grassroots level to the grass tops level. And that's what you, you all do on every podcast. So I, I really applaud you. Well, thank you. Well, we'll take that applause. We don't yeah. get much applause around we here. We love at all. talking about the resource. I mean, it's well, so we, we near do. and dear to us. Yeah. It, it really is. And, well, and it's just it's so simple. There yeah. it is. There you go. Bible music. Yes, sir, on the first row, too. <laughs> well, so, Pat, we talk about being a gamekeeper, and that just includes it's just a wide Yeah, it's array. not for deer, turkey, ducks. It's for everything. That's right. That's right. It's for the earth we live on. That's our whole mantra. That's, mm-hmm. that's right. So, could you start us off? And, and, and like we said, we've got Neil here who's uh, the – who love saltwater fishing, uh, but but could you kind of talk about some of the bigger issues that you guys are working on right now? What do we need to know about your organization? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question because it's it's broad enough, you know. Um, and and you've already touched on it a little bit. We got a, a long tradition. Uh, we started in 1977 um, dealing with gill nets in Texas waters, and the gill nets horribly extractive for folks that aren't familiar with them. Um, they can do a quick web search and see what it is. Wildly indiscriminate, destructive gear. Um, it's crazy to think of people using them. It'd be like duck hunting with a grenade. It just kind of blows up everything. And so we'd catch all of these different species as well as speckled trout and red drum, which we obviously care an awful lot about. And um, and so in 1977, it was rampantly out of control in a lot of waters, but including Texas's. Um, 14 recreational anglers is kind of a fabled story, but it's true. Got together in a tackle shop um, and said, you know what, we're going to make a difference. And, you know, you, you, you really heard that story play out in most species. I mean, already thematically, we're talking about terrestrial and aquatic, both taking the same paths. The same thing played out in everything from, you know, from ducks to turkey to elk. And, um, and it's playing out across the U.S. And I really appreciate the comment of seeing the before and after on mm-hmm. CCA. I just, I, I saw that too, to some degree in that, um, you know, years before we were going to work for CCA, I was a fishing guide in Texas waters. And then, you know, flash forward to where I am now and what I've seen happen and the impact that can happen from folks getting involved and trying to make a difference for the resource. It's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, and so with that backdrop, the issues we face um, are, are in some ways, some of the most daunting in that, there's another side to the equation of all the great things that we all know about hunting and fishing is there's a lot of people that want to stop us from doing that. Um, and not necessarily for resource management issues or better conservation, which we're of course all for, but sometimes it's arbitrary exclusion. And, um, and so that's always the threat. And I think is always a threat moving forward. It's something we deal with in every administration, be it state or federal. And um, and probably I think we all know, even personally, the greatest threat to our resources um, and marine resources, in particular in this case, is, is folks not being there, good stewards not being there who enjoy that resource. So how far when you start talking about coastal, do you all do you all work obviously through Texas, but then how far up the East Coast do you all typically go? Yeah, we do business in 18 states. We, we have a presence on the West Coast, Gulf, and East Coast. Uh, we have um, members throughout the U.S. Uh, interestingly enough, we even have a Nashville chapter, our Music City chapter, which are a bunch of folks that are clearly inland, 
mm-hmm. but care a lot about the coast. Um, but we have offices in 12 states being Washington, Oregon, California, all the Gulf, and then the South Atlantic up to Maryland, where we have uh, executive directors and, and active teams of volunteers um, doing the good work of conservation. Wow. That's a big organization. And that, but y'all are covering, that's a, if you put mild, if you stretch that out, that's a lot of ground that they're covering. And it, you know, the interesting thing to me is the habitat is so different from state to state. And how you guys can can get you know South Carolina to agree to what Georgia does, and Georgia agree to what I don't know how y'all do all that. That's got to be very very politically challenging. That's a tremendous point, and it's funny. So we we operate in an interesting model. Um, so let's imagine right now you go to a Mississippi chapter banquet, one of the local chapters, and you go and participate and play the same games we all play in, in, in any of the great outdoor advocacy groups that we're involved with. And what we do, our model is that the money that's raised in the state stays in the state. And so membership dollars go to our national office, but you know, all the great things you do um, that raise money locally, it stays there. And it speaks exactly to your point is that, you know, you might be doing it oysters in this region and you might be doing offshore reefing in this region and you might deal with striped bass in the Chesapeake and then, you know, turn around and be dealing with speckled trout in South Texas. And um, our founder was really a guy named Walter Fondren here in Houston, uh, who was a big angler and had a great conservation vision. And he quickly saw that he sitting in Houston, Texas, wasn't the right person to say how long a striped bass should be and how the season should be managed any more so than someone sitting in Maryland or Virginia should tell him how to manage redfish. And so that's sort of where we're framed around. And, and it's allowed us to be adaptive in a lot of regions and with a lot of different management models and habitat issues. And it all comes down again and again to the grassroots. It's the people that are there, uh, the volunteers and credible leaders who step up and the staff that helps them that ends up making the difference neil have you got any experience with these guys just a little bit uh, a, a ton of my friends from uh mobile are really involved with their, their local cca chapter and a lot of them do uh, tagging programs and stuff like that uh <clears throat> I, I did have i guess a couple of questions one maybe a stupid question but um ask it anyway but I, I don't I don't think CCA intentionally does work for waterfowl, even though, you know, waterfowl call pretty much the entire America coastline uh, home to pretty much anywhere you go. There's going to be a population of waterfowl. Uh, so if you don't like, you know, I think you're dedicated to just marine species, correct? We are, but 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 have, so, yeah, I guess my question would be, have you seen uh, the the work you do for marine species positively affect? Uh, have an effect on waterfowl species, whether it's like habitat, you know, I don't know what that might look like, but I just was curious if that had an effect uh, or if you worked together with like a Ducks Unlimited or other conservation organizations since, since waterfowl call the same waters that, that you're conserving for marine species, you know, they're trying to help for waterfowl species. No, y'all ask really good questions, by the way. That's a really good question because it's, it is. Um, and, and you're correct. You're spot on is that we, uh, we do some joint projects with Ducks Unlimited. Um, uh, there's one in particular you can you can Google if you want Dagger Island, uh, which is down in the Port Aransas area. Which, just like you said, you know the funny thing is a lot of the work we do with shoreline protection or with grass restoration, uh, marsh restoration, 
Um, it just works perfectly with waterfowl. And um, the work we've done on uh, Cedar Bayou, which again is in the middle of Texas coast, but we've done these projects, you know, all over the U.S. that have huge additive value to waterfowl. Now, I will say there's a lot of projects we do like offshore reefing that has obviously no impact. Um, but, you know, even an oyster mound done in the right bay or on the right shoreline can be tremendously impactful for keeping that marsh structure in place. And we do a lot of that work through all the Gulf, um, in particular in, in Texas, Louisiana, um, Alabama, and um, in particular, those spots have been good points for us to, to really make a difference for the entire eco, because in the end, it is all connected. And if you got, you know, healthy grasses and healthy waters, you're going to have healthy trout and redfish, but you're also going to have healthy ducks. Yeah, that Texas coastline. Uh, they 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 That's always see pictures of them shooting them. redheads down yeah. there, pintails oh, on, on the coastline. Marsh there. ducks, yeah. yeah, no doubt about um, it. And there's just been so much going on, like in the Chesapeake Chesapeake Bay area for years. I I can imagine where y'all would do joint workings up there. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's no doubt, and there's more, even more opportunities than we're doing. Uh, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, as you alluded to, the, the far reach of waterfowl is, is and it's and honestly too, I mean, sort of from my side of it, I mean, in terms of looking from the fish side, what's interesting is waterfowl, the footprint of waterfowl is so much broader. And for folks that get associated with, you know, many of the great NGOs that are involved there, the Ducks Unlimited and what have you, it's a heck of a good gateway drug to get involved with CCA. Because all of a sudden, if they happen to get a coastal flare to them or care about the ocean, they kind of already get the model. I mean, they, they get sort of how that works and how you can make an impact on the resource by affecting management and then also building habitat. And, um, and so it's, it's a really great synergy between. Yeah. That, that kind of intrigued me just as far as like recruiting new membership and stuff. Cause most of the time when someone gets involved with a conservation organization, it's because they care deeply for whatever that is conserving, whether it's ducks, deer, turkeys, marine species, anything. And, and so just think as far as, you know, coastal waterfowl hunters, a way to, to give back a little more or, you know, get involved with something that might positively impact their area. Uh, just uh, that's kind of where that question came from. So that, no that's interesting. Yeah. And you see a lot. I mean, how many stories have you heard through the years um, or maybe you've seen it yourself where, you know, someone in a marsh duck blind um, has a big pod of redfish tailing, you know, right by their, yeah. their boys. And, yeah. uh, and again, what a great way to see that, wait a minute, this really good habitat for this really good duck hunting I have is also really good habitat for those redfish. Yeah, who needs motion decoys? You just get some redfish. Just mm-hmm. <laughs> Lanny, have you got a question? Yeah, I would love to talk about the Rigs to Reef program. Uh, and, you yeah. know, I've, I just over the years, I've noticed, you know, spent a lot of time in the Gulf, uh, uh, the, how, what a resource these, these rigs were. Uh, and now as I go out there, I'm seeing fewer and fewer of them. Uh, so just yeah. helping everybody understand, like, what that process is, who is, you know, is that state, is that federal, you know, how does that really work, and, and what, you know, we can do uh, as as recreational fishermen uh, to help keep some of those things intact. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you, you probably, like myself, grew up fishing around offshore platforms. Yeah, uh, that's exactly they're, they're the best. It is funny to me, and I travel all over the U.S. On, on, on along the coast, and it is funny in different regions, and I'm not picking on any regions, um, but where they think an offshore platform is like a source of pollution 
And oh, when I see an offshore platform, when I'm driving along, all I think is I probably could catch a jackfish by that or maybe a shark or maybe a kingfish. And when I was growing up too, you know, the electronic technology was, it was a Loran C. I mean, it was bad. It was a Loran C and a compass. And my dad and I were not that good. And so <laughs> those, those jackets were critical to us to having a decent day offshore fishing. So I have this huge affinity for them. And, um, and so we've worked with states and federal. And to your question, there's a state and federal aspect to it. There's, there's sites, you know, within often within state waters, and then the operators of those jackets, when they're decommissioned, plugged, all that kind of stuff, they cut them below a mud line, and then they have the opportunity to drag them to permitted sites. Now, sometimes they don't choose to do that um, for a whole host of reasons that could probably take up a whole show. And, um, and, and so there's more that can be done. I mean, in the end, we need more permitted sites. We need the federal government allowing some platforms to be rigged in or to be left in place um, because of the ecological value that, um, and then also too, what we're trying to do, we had a couple of really good examples off of Louisiana where a key structure was removed. There's one called the pickets um, off of Louisiana that had tremendous fishing around it. The structure had to be removed for a whole host of reasons. Um, it couldn't be left in place. And so we went in and did reefing in that area by putting down structure that would maintain the relief and some of the washouts and current changes to maintain the fishing. Um, so probably the answer is everybody working together on it. And, and, you know, the one that's most challenging is often the federal government, just because there's a lot of other factors involved, um, you know, in energy management and there's politics in it, not surprisingly. Um, but there is incredible opportunity to keep structure in the water. And I think there's also an opportunity to educate people that that structure is good stuff. Yeah. And I don't mean, you know, I don't mean just the energy extraction. What's so funny is there's a, there's a lot of science. Um, a fellow actually from Alabama did some of the most, probably the earliest and some of the most cutting edge work on it. Uh, Dr. Bob Ship that, uh, that really started to figure out that, Gulf of Mexico red snapper, one of the more controversial species and discussed species in the Gulf of Mexico, is that the stock of that, that fish, that much desired fish, is better now than it was in the 1800s. And there's a lot of reasons that happened, but one of the key reasons that built out was because of more structure, no which was these shore platforms. And so it began to build this biomass that has done an amazing job, you know, creating a great recreational species for that matter. It's even a commercial species. And, um, and so those structures hold a lot of life. So is it the federal um, government? We need to talk to our, 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 our senators about this. Is that what we need to do? Because I mean, to see it going on, you know, from personal experience, I mean, the best way I can describe it is to get in the water and dive into one and see actually yeah. the amount of fish and life <laughs> That, that these things promote. I can, I can answer your question, though. Yeah. Don't, don't fool with Washington. Write CCA check. That's yeah. what you need to do. Yeah. Because well, that's what do they that. do. They take care of it for you. I can promise I you. I just want to, you know, make people more aware of what's going on because 
It's yeah. one of the most drastic things I've ever seen in, in my outdoor career, you know, to, yeah. to be able to actually personally witness the amount of fish that are under these structures and then go back over the last 10 years and see those things being removed and almost being removed in a way that it not only destroys the habitat, it destroys the fish that are there in the first place. Uh, too. Yeah. It, just doesn't, it just doesn't seem like a smart way to approach it. So how are they it's destroying fair. them? Oh, what I've seen is they're taking the tops down, and I think they use explosives to take them all the way to the to the sea floor. There, there's certain ones they do if they can't cut them below the mud line. And some of it, I'll be honest with you. So, to the where is the pressure point where we can make a difference? And it's a hard question to answer because it's so many spots. Because sometimes it's the operator too. These these jackets get sold multiple times, and it might have started with one of the big names that we would all know that generally really want to do the right thing in terms of moving it to a, uh, you know, a designated site if they're able to and if, and if they can permitting wise and all that good stuff. But then when they get sold and sold and sold and sold, the operator of it might be some name we've never heard of. Mm-hmm. And some of them just want to get it as a liability off of their, um, off of their, their balance sheet. And so instead of dragging it to the site, they'd rather just drag it in and scrap it. That's not a good answer. I mean, that's, or that's not what we want. Right. Unfortunately, that's what happens my belief would be more and more permitted sites and more and more opportunity for them to reef it in site in, in the same spot where maybe they chop it off. There's navigation reasons. It has to be down a certain depth. Sure. But if, if they're deep enough, they can be laid over and then properly set, man, that's, that's a pretty nice compromise. We'd lose some of the top end stuff. As we all know, that photo light area is where a lot of the cool kids hang out. You know, mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the pelagics and everything are. But that bottom structure is just as critical. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a real broad answer, but I think a lot can be done. And I think it's it's reaching out to federal contacts. I think it's reaching out to state contacts. It's really, it gets back to the grassroots we talked about, is yeah. that people matter in these things. And I often encourage people, um, the thing that always impresses me in politics is there's two things and the two sides two very different sides of the same coin is how intractable many of these places and processes and people are, but also how much of a difference a constituent can make in a member's office Mm. is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. If you take the time, get to know your representatives and actually, you know, understand an issue and present a point. If you and a handful of friends all do that, it doesn't take a lot of people to start to make a difference. Hmm. You know, I've never, for me, one, I've never had confidence in that whatsoever. Yeah. You know, and I just don't know any better. I'm probably ignorant about that, but I feel like there's no way I could make it. Even in my position, you know. Right. But that's why, you know, I said before I was kidding, but I wasn't. It's like send a check to someone who knows what they're really doing. But if we could, sure. I think that one thing we are doing is that is the biggest uh, overall broad impact factor is – People really, especially people, I hate to say I'm getting old and long in the tooth, but older people do remember and can really feel the difference yes. today, like you talked about. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes if you don't have that perspective, you kind of take it for granted. We've always had it this good. Right. Same way with deer. That's, I mean, the good old days of deer hunting are right now. There's right never now, been days right. like we're in today and due to, you know, smart management and conservation. And, yeah, you know, um, I guess the main thing is that, to know, you know, because I've always had this mindset, and I'm sure I'm like a lot of naive people. It's like, look, the Gulf and the oceans are so big. How can, you know, getting on to me for catching a few two-meter redfish matter or whatever? Well, you know what? By and large, those 
all-encompassing laws and enforcing them have made such a huge difference that it's just a fact. I mean, it proved that the, the data proved itself out. I, I had always thought, how can we make a difference? I mean, you, surely you can't catch too many. I just, it's amazing, you know, the yeah. difference that they've really made that I, it's, uh, you know, opened my eyes. Yeah. It, it really is. It's funny. Yeah, I, I think you hit a lot of really good points there. And because you think, it is so vast. And at times the resource does feel that abundant. I mean, it really, really does. It, it, yeah, I think we've all had experiences like that. And then it's it, to see it go away, to see it change. Yeah. Uh, really. It's, it's, it's amazing. It, it was only bring- yeah, three, four five years if my memory serves me right. When the whole, the, the, the net effect, literally the net effect that is actually a play on words um, on the coast of Mississippi and Alabama, where I hung up, hung out growing up and just, you know, and I wasn't even experienced enough. I went and I, you know, but my, my kin folks and my friends and stuff like Neil's talking about, it's a lot of the same people, the sons of those people and what they talked about. And then what I actually experienced the difference, it was almost like a desert, you know, uh, for some of these species. And during that time, you know, say whatever, 75, yeah. late seventies, even until some of this stuff took effect, but it, it just blew my mind. Cause I was like, how can this make a difference? Seriously. And then the next thing you know, everybody's talking about mm-hmm. what a difference it made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, our resources are amazingly resilient if yeah. put in the right. You know, if they're put in the right management, yeah. they really are. They really are. They can, they, and that's where sometimes I think again, I'll get back to podcasts like this are so critical to make sure people have hope because there's some folks, um, and I'm not picking on any specifics, but some of the folks in the hardline environmental space. We'd like to tell you the oceans are going to be empty by, you know, 20, whatever, by 2050, we're done. You know, it's just awful. And it's like, man, they're missing the success stories. Mm-hmm. Look at what's happened, you know, through fisheries like, you know, the Western Gulf of Mexico's red drum fishery. Think about the snook fishery, how much difference it made when they got gill nets out of Florida. Um, there's amazing stories. And then some of the stuff that's going on right now in science, marine science, and, and, it, and hatchery development is incredible. We have the opportunity to make a huge impact. And, and just as you're talking about, rebuild some of these fisheries that maybe could have just been a dream 20 or 30 years ago mm-hmm. that we can really, we can build them back. That's incredible. So Pat, has Instagram and, or, or social media in general been a help to you guys? Or, or are there more people trying to take a picture with a fish and getting it out of the water and not knowing how to handle that fish out of water or keeping it out too long. That looks like it might be creating some problems. You know, it's, uh, man, I keep going back to great questions because we, we look at Instagram a lot in the sense of trying to monitor, you know, what works because we're using a lot of it to try to educate people. And I will say this, it's been an interesting evolution. So again, I'll flash back 25 years when I was a full-time fishing guide and it was in, in recent our trout fishery, we followed the limits, but we wanted to fill out our limit every day. We wanted to stuff them in the cooler. If you didn't, if you couldn't close your cooler, that was a better day than if you could close your cooler. And to see where it's evolved, it's not quite where the largemouth bass fishery is, but it is developing. And I think social media, I think this is bold, but I think it's helping some that sure. way because I think it's showing it's creating new sort of mores within society of, okay, you, if you're not doing that, because here's an example. So in 2021, we had a really bad freeze uh, on the Texas coast that really decimated a lot of speckled trout in certain regions. 
And a lot of the guides and local experts really made a point to get on social and say, hey, I'm not keeping any fish. I'm not going to keep any trout this year, maybe for a long time. And it was interesting. Then there were a handful of guide services that made a, a provocative point of posting what they were catching and you know sticking them on nails at the boat ramp, showing off their catch. Mm. And they really got shelled. I mean, they really, really did. Awesome. Now, that's you wouldn't have seen that 20 or 30 years ago that wouldn't right so i think social media might be some of the real good in that is promoting that catch and release ethic and making it cool yeah we we seem to see that a lot you know like if somebody takes the tarpon and out of the water in the boat for the photo you know some people that aren't as knowledgeable are going to say you know congrats but some people are going to say, hey, you're really not supposed to take them out of the water, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that's where uh, social media can be a blessing and a curse, but it's also it's <laughs> such a good vector for learning how to do the right way of things. So to your point, like a tarpon, you know, someone catching a tarpon in Alabama that didn't grow up fishing for them, maybe that, you know, as some opposed to someone who's fished for them their whole life in Florida, you know, they may catch a tarpon and not know that because most, most of the time you take a fish, you take a picture with it and throw it back in, it's fine. Tarpon are not a species you can do that with because they most of the time are going to get eaten by a shark or die if you take them out of the water. So that's where social media can be a blessing to where people can actually learn. You know, if you, if you did take a picture, you'd get roasted for it, but then you would never make that mistake again. Uh, people would jump, you know, rush in to tell you how you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, it may hurt your feelings, but at least you're going to learn how to do yeah, it. At least you he just made a point, I think, that's big. And I think back to where – we first quit shooting does and then quit shooting young bucks. I mean, I was a kid. If it had hair, if it had horns visible above hairline, it was shot. And, you know, uh, <laughs> just the same with ducks. And we just shoot a limit of ducks and didn't care what it was. You know, and then, you know, we shot jakes and everything and turkeys. But when those laws change, well, it's not a law against. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a bag limit on, you know, greenheads versus Susie's. But when it became embarrassing, or when right. you know it hit you, it hit your pride and your ego. It changed, and I hate to say that it, that we use the ego to the good of Mother Nature. But when it became embarrassing, I can remember vividly when it became embarrassing that you shot a small buck, and now it's really embarrassing. It's pervasive in all hunting society about that. So, but that's yeah. a good thing until people became uh, whatever embarrassed about that. You know, it just kind of kept going on. And so the same thing has happened today. The same thing happened, you know, he talked about in social media, we'll flush those people out. If they brag about the wrong thing, they'll get hammered. That's peer pressure. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if it, if it ends up being for the good of Mother Nature and the wildlife, then so be it. It's great. Mm. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And, and we also got to remember, too, now it maybe has never been more important because think about all those people who've gotten involved with fishing since 2020. You know, we've seen license sales really do well in all of our coastal states and and some of those uh, more of those folks are sticking than i thought maybe i was worried it'd be transient and doesn't seem as transient as maybe i feared and so a lot of them their first orientation particularly um if they're the of the right age group is going to be social media and so that may be their first brush of it is they see hey this is what you do you let this fish go this way you know you keep one this size but you don't keep one that size we might get a new generation of conservationists coming up um, that go in armed, not necessarily like from experience, like some of what we're talking about, but just immediately sort of knowing that that's just the way. 
um, maybe like a new person to say bass fishing right now would say, what do you mean string them? I don't even know what that means. I would love to dream that might be where we get the people, you know, understanding good stewardship and, and the right kind of limits from the start. You're talking right from the gamekeeper mission book yeah. because yeah. honestly more and more and more in it. And it honestly, it happens beyond what we push, promote and affect, but more and more people are caring for, the critters and caring for their land and caring for the, the oceans and all uh, is actually become more important to them than as my dad would say, the catching, the killing, the keeping and all that. Yep. And so it's not that they, you know, you have two things working. You got people that care and do the right thing. And there's such a mass of millions of those now, but it's also become their passion. Just like for us working on the land is honestly, if we had to, have it called out probably more important and more fun than shooting stuff now. Mm-hmm. Although we love it all. Yeah. And I think you've got so many people that have awakened to, because I like in a great term for your organization is y'all are the, not just the, the fish people. Y'all are the guardians of the coastline. Mm-hmm. And so yes, that, yes, yeah. And that, that affects so much. Yeah, oh yeah. Dudley, you had a question? Yeah. Uh, um, I hope I don't, Hit a soft spot, but uh, and I'm I'm trying to learn. I'm, I probably know the least about this stuff, but you know I I probably go inshore or offshore maybe once every summer, every other summer with friends, and you know again on social media you see stuff pop up about the dead zone or the hypoxic zone. Uh, I know you guys probably have a stance on that, and I, I respect your opinion. So I kind of want to know about that. I mean, you know. You come out of the South Pass or the Southwest Pass, and that's supposed to be the dead zone, and you see people just catching tarpon just a mile out and uh, fish jumping everywhere. And uh, I just I want a better understanding of that because I, uh, you know, so what, what is you guys' stance on that, and, and how does it work and everything? Well, I mean, it's clearly a big environmental issue, and, and I think okay. that the greater context of it is hypoxia, which is, you know, you see that in all sorts of environments. You can see that in a stock pond. You can see that in, a, in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And, um, and there's other things that probably would be in that same category of, you know, we've seen a, a greater abundance of harmful algal blooms. Imagine like in things like red tide, mm-hmm. um, basically wildly destructive, some tied to all sorts of things, be it downstream, Fertilizers, extra nutrient loading because of flooding. Um, often the the quote unquote dead zone or the hypoxic zone. A lot of that is attributed to um, again man made inflows into the Gulf. To some degree, it's a little bit like ocean plastic. It's a huge issue. Okay. It's, but it's real issue. I mean, there's and, and the other thing is it it kind of comes and goes to some degree. You know, one of the things that you get a hurricane through the Gulf of Mexico and it may change the dynamics on all of that. Um, it can change things like how, where it's present, where there's hypoxic zones present. It can actually stir up things and eliminate red tide. I'm going to kind of get back to the resilience of the eco. If we can try to do the right things from our ends, um, you know, being urban dwellers in some way, shape or form, like many of us are, if we can try to do the things like that we need to do and then, give the Gulf a chance to recover, um, do the right things regulatorily. There's probably ways to abate some of that. But in the end, that those issues, particularly the more and more there are of us, those issues are going to probably become more and more a challenge rather than less. Now, the flip side of it is 
the more and more of us that moved to the coast, you know, that's sort of all, that's a lot of the mash on, you know, I was, I was applauding all the new people coming in fishing. There's many people who think, Oh my gosh, that's terrible. There's all these people coming in. How's the resource going to handle it? Um, which is, you know, I mean, a fair concern, but I will say, I keep going back to even some of these issues that are created by the abundance of us is that we're a lot better off with a lot of us than we are with none of us. Mm-hmm. And and it's those stewards that are ultimately there, the folks that are willing to be on the water, that are going to make a difference and are going to be there to help deal, try to tackle huge issues, global issues like hypoxia. Wow. So it is a big deal. No, it is. No, and, it, and like I say, it's everywhere. It's, I mean, hypoxic zones exist, you know, everywhere. Um, and, but, but again, they also, I mean, in the end, there's a, it's a lack of, of oxygen. It's a lack of, of really a, imagine a, an atmosphere, so to speak, for all those marine creatures. And, um, and they come from a variety of, of different sources, but they're real. And, um, but it doesn't mean it's the end of it. It doesn't, and definitely doesn't mean that it's going to be something that's going to end fishing in the Gulf of Mexico as some may portray. Gotcha. So the one Dudley's referring to is where the Mississippi River runs into the Gulf, and there's sure. a, a, a dead, dead zone area right, right in there. And so, you know, you, you may read something, and, and it says, you know, everything's nothing can live within a 80-mile radius of where it exits. And, but we're going six miles out and filling the boat with, you know, whatever's in season. And so it's, I just, it's a little misunderstanding to me, uh, but maybe yeah. it's, uh, maybe it was, a, it flourished a lot more before the pollution, et cetera, started to happen. It, it's just a little well, confusing I, to me. I think it's also too, it's funny, the Gulf of Mexico, at least globally, gets a bit of a bum rap. It's uh, because it's looked at as this sort of, you know, oil depot. And just like we were talking about with, with oil and gas structures that are these literally oasis of all life. And, and the Gulf of Mexico is as robust and abundant a fishing spot as there is. And, um, you know, we saw it, it was, it was interesting after the Macondo crisis. Um, and, you know, we'd obviously had a, a big oil spill and I'm not diminishing that one bit, but it was, there were many that were trying to build that as the death of the Gulf of Mexico. And, um, and it clearly wasn't. And we saw all sorts of things that helped um, rebuild those stocks. We also saw that some of those stocks were already in good enough shape that it really didn't affect things. Um, we saw even the Gulf itself healing itself on a microbial level. And, um, and so I think we'll always probably as Gulf anglers um, face a little bit of a rap that way. And, uh, and it's misplaced. I mean, it's, it's really misplaced because it is truly one of the finest fishing destinations, um, you know, in the U S and beyond. No doubt. So Mac, you really uh, look like you've got a question, Mac. I do. So when, when I think about all the different game species that you try to manage within those coastal waters, and I, I try to think about like our big game that we, we hunt on land, like deer, turkeys, and ducks, and you have so many of these different species, do you have to manage them separately uh, in, in those crossovers? And then like when I think of predators and invasive species and hurricanes and, and kind of all these moving parts in that ecosystem, what are some of the biggest, I guess, obstacles that y'all face? Is it the predators? Is it the hatch? Is it the hurricanes? Is it the structure? And kind of, kind of, how do you tackle all that within 
maintaining a, a, a positive, I guess, growth rate of the specific population. Yeah, and I mean, I think you set that up right. It's a broad spectrum of species, you know, you, and, and so you have a diversity of management approaches. Um, probably the, one of the bigger challenges with fish is they, they, the pesky little things have fins, and so they don't really understand state waters and federal waters. They don't understand if they're in Mississippi or they're in Louisiana, and so different areas try to manage different ways, and on species that travel distances, um, that can be a challenge, and also the the Gulf is, uh, you know, we forget, I forget, um, the, the Gulf of Mexico, I think of the five states that border it, you know, and it's really easy for me to forget about Mexico and Cuba. Um, so you have this international component, and when you start to think about species like tarpon, um, that's really, really relevant. And what goes on in the Bay of Campeche may very much matter for what goes on uh, with, with the tarpon fishery. And so you end up with a lot of, a lot of the a lot of levels of, of management, be it state management. Um, and even with that, within state management, you can get local pieces where let's just say an inshore species, it may be managed to X amount of inches here and X amount here trying to affect the spawning biomass. And then you have a federal piece, so everything from state waters out to 200 nautical miles. Um, and so that's all done through the federal fishery management system. And then even within that, you have crossover between those two. And then again, these, these fish that decide to swim long distances um, present a challenge, particularly when they go and leave 200 nautical miles, because now they're in international waters, which creates this new challenge. So um, I guess my answer to that question is it's a lot of different layers. It, and honestly, too, it's one of the ways that CCA has been um, really quite effective in some of these difficult federal species is because we do just that. We work on a local, state, regional, and federal level. Um, we don't dip into the international quite as much. There are groups that do. We found that to be a really difficult, intractable, intractable environment um, when you're dealing with the big pelagic species. Think in terms of different species of tuna, billfish. Um, that gets real challenging when you're trying to manage things that get affected by other countries um, and their fishing practices. But within the state and regional management, that's and, and the federal management, that's where we spend a lot of our time. And um, and each species within that is different. You know, you're going to manage a kingfish very differently than you would a red snapper. Um, they may be in the same system, but they're going to be managed very differently. And that uh, I guess that kind of leads me into my next question. And uh, and, and this has always intrigued me from fish and uh, you know anything that travels and migrates from waterfowl to fish. Uh, but tagging has always been uh, something I've <laughs> just been fascinated with um whether it be waterfowl uh just seeing where they where they were tagged where they ended up you know and then and a lot of my friends that i fished with here in alabama uh, are involved in a lot of tagging programs with like uh triple tail and you know redfish and speckled trout stuff like that uh i really follow a lot a lot of my friends that i fish with offshore like you know the billfish foundation they did a lot of a lot of billfish tagging programs um, and even the bonefish and tarpon trust and, and, and yeah. like tarpon stuff, cause the tarpon migration in the Gulf is something that's really fascinating to me. So when, when you have, when you go through and you and say someone tags a, a triple tail in the mobile Bay and someone catches it in whatever Houston, Texas, whatever it may be, what kind of, like, what do you learn from that? And how do you apply it to, to better that fish? Like what kind of information are you learning whenever you, someone tags a fish and re, recaptures that fish? Yeah, tagging is critical. And, and, and what's interesting is there's lots of different kinds of tags. You know, so there's 
tags that you know that attach to a ray inside of a fin. So I mean, you stick it in the in the fish's back. Um, it grabs a fin. Um, there's acoustic tagging where they embed it in the fish's abdomen, and then there's sensors. Um, and then when you think about some of the ones that are satellite tags that gather all kinds of different information, eventually pop free and float to the top. Think about some of the sharks that you might see. Um, and, and so the, the, the data they get from it is diverse. They get movement. They get in particular the ones where they can get really climatological type information that, you know, they like to do this at this depth. And then you think about some of these really cool species um, like mako sharks and some of the work that the folks at Texas A&M Corpus Christi at their Heart Research Institute there do, they tag these sharks and they're figuring out there. We know so little about some species and, you know, tarpon's an example. Some of these sharks are example where they're just trying to figure out where they go and spawn. And so as they can learn that stuff, it's not just for the, you know, the academic interest. It's so you can learn better management and say, wait a minute, you know, this species is in this area at this time and it's when it spawns and that's critically important to protect. So tagging is really important and it, um, and it can teach them a lot. There was some work when we, we were doing in Texas, opening up various passes and, um, and they were doing acoustic tagging. Dr. Greg Stunz there with A&M Corpus Christi was putting these acoustic tags in these, you know, in, in all sorts of species. And then the minute we opened that pass and, and it, opened it up into Mesquite Bay and Aransas Bay to finish the areas, fish immediately started moving through that pass, which number one told you the significance of those passes. Um, and interestingly, just even as a fisherman told you, their attunement to changes environmentally is incredible, but they were able to track the movement of these species, why they were going in there and what they might be doing there. Which again, if you're applying that within being a good steward, it's incredible information, just incredible information to get. Don't wow. you know some of those touristy towns on the coast love it when the GPS tracked great white yeah. com- comes through town? Yeah. yeah. They don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. They don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. If everybody knew how many sharks were out there, nobody would be. Out there. <laughs> oh, right? my God. Uh, so, so, so say if, if, I'm, if me or someone was wanting to uh, learn how to get involved with tagging programs, uh, what information would you have to tell them as far as like how to get involved with, with, you know, whatever they may fish for? That's sure. A, you know, Probably the best fish. way is, is for them to contact their state. And I mean, their state coastal fisheries department um, and see what kind of tagging programs they have. Louisiana um, is one that really does a lot of public outreach through it. And what's neat is that, again, these are these things that get people really excited about conservation because if you tag some fish and that might've been one of my first ways that I really got my, eye on conservation was as a as a young fishing guide is that i tagged fish for something back then called fish trackers and so i had my little tags and you take a card and you mail it in and now and again you'd get the information back that was sort of part of the the rub of it is that you might that you learn something and um and you had these great moments where you'd see you catch a speckled trout 15 inches and you catch it inside this bay system and then it's caught however long later and it's 17 inches and now it's out on the beachfront and you start to think, well, that's pretty cool. And then, you know, you can get the information, but you're getting it personally. Now, let's say it was funny. Um, it was some of those early moments where you realize that not everyone's a sportsman. Um, I remember tagging some redfish that were oversized uh, outside the slot um, that, you know, let's say 29-inch redfish. 
And then I'd get the tag results back and it was caught, you know, a couple months later and somehow magically it was 27 inches. Wow. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that crazy how that worked? <laughs> I wonder how that happened. Yeah. Uh, but, but even that lesson probably was pretty valuable yeah. because it starts to remind you that, you know what, you know, little indiscretions in a sense can have really big results. And, and the same way little concert, sure, back to what we started about is how little conservation victories can actually have really tremendous results Yes, and that you can make a difference. Even if you're, you know, one angler sticking some tags and turning that information into that state coastal fisheries division, that information may help, you know, lead the great next step forward of better understanding the management of that species. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, that's why I, I think it's so important to get involved because what, and, and, and land land species, you know, we know so much, but marine species, we know so little about, especially the, you know, even, even when you say something that lives, you know, on the coastline, like a tarpon, you would think, oh yeah, it's one of the oldest species still around. I mean, they were down around when the dinosaurs were here. Surely mm -hmm. we know everything there is to know about tarpon and they don't even know where they spawn. It's uh, incredible. Which is, it's, it really, it's crazy. So it, it, it's incredible. So important to get involved because there's right. so much still to be learned about all these different species. I think that's such an important point, and that the mystery of the ocean is still so much alive, which is a really good thing in some ways. Now we need to know more to better manage it, but I mean, we can literally send a rocket off to the moon every other day, but we somehow really can't figure out tarpon. That's kind of humbling in a good way. That that is awesome. us, you know, yeah, I mean, that that a lot of species we need to be really, really careful with because we can make some huge mistakes with them. And, um, and I think we've probably evidenced that through a long history of mankind's interaction like that. But, but again, it keeps getting back to, we, you know, folks like all of us here talking are, are the stewards. And I think maybe more so we're also the conveyors of that information of stewardship and reminding people to not give up. You can get involved. You can make a difference. And I see that a lot through our CCA chapters. It's, it's funny that sometimes all you need for someone to get really involved. Our, our founder had this great image. Um, I use this one all the time. But, you know, if, if, a, if a log falls across a chasm and you tell a guy, hey, go walk across that. He's like, whoa, wait a minute. I could fall in. All kinds of terrible things would happen. But if you give him so much as a twig to hold on to as you help him walk across, he'll walk smoothly across. And it's like, wow, that's kind of like a proverb or something. It's like that really makes sense to me. And so I think it's folks like us who've been doing it for, you know, measured in the decades instead of the days that we can help by if nothing else saying you can make a difference, get involved. And the passion you have toward fishing can turn into a passion that, that drives conservation. Lanny, I can see you, know, you love saltwater. I can see this. Yeah, is, I'm, I'm joining coastal conservation it, right now. It, as we speak. Something <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. Cool. I, have a, I have one more question. Is there any, I didn't hear this address, so maybe I missed it. Um, are there any invasive species issues? Because mm. we didn't talk about that. They're a big issue to us in all kinds yeah. of inland stuff, like whether it's in uh, yeah. Asian carp or snakehead fish or, or kogan grass yes. or, you know, Japanese cormorants in our fish ponds here. Or hydrilla, water lotus. <laughs> I mean, those are getting invasive in plants and different species. Are there, you know, I know that in the ocean and the coast is a different animal. Are there issues with invasive species today that are a threat? You bet. You bet. No, that's, that's, you bet. They absolutely are. And it can be, you know, the, the topic of, of sort of, of the day in, in the mid Atlantic is, uh, is snakeheads, you know, that, you oh, know, yeah. obviously are just darn near bulletproof. 
And I'll tell you another bulletproof one that people don't often think about is the lionfish wow. in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. They are horrible. And so, you know, they've gotten out from people letting them go from aquariums, from all sorts of things. Wow. And don't really have predators. They hang out in the same reefs that our snapper and grouper, grouper complex do. Voracious eaters, voracious, voraciously aggressive. Are and, they kids of these feral hogs we have here? <laughs> yeah. Sounds just like our hogs. You know, no, they, they are. They don't have a predator. They're in a sense, you're, you're really right. I mean, it's a really good analogy because um, they're brutal. And um, and so, you know, we've had to resort to, we've tried all sorts of things and we've had to resort to trying to really promote tournaments that the person yeah. who sticks the of them, you know, wins a prize. Um, we've tried to work with some chefs to promote them because, you know, there's nothing better to, you know, really eradicate a species than convince everyone it tastes real good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> about it. And, For uh, sure. and so, We've played with that a little bit and trying to promote lionfish as a, as a, you know, really a culinary sort of destination species, but they're so hard to handle. And, and, uh, they've been very, very challenging. I don't know where we end up with them. Um, but I like the hog analogy with it because it, it feels that difficult in how we eventually address that problem. Well, it seems inhumane to think that you would just like put a 22 behind one's head and throw them back in, or just, if you don't keep them, kill them or do something, it seems awful. But when you consider the way they would get out of balance, you're still doing the world a favor by trying to keep them in check. I mean, if just I had no oh, idea. Yeah. Just talking about today, maybe a few more people know about it. You know? Yeah. No. Yeah. A lionfish, a, no problem. No yeah. problem. I was a. Uh, I caught a lionfish on a sabiki rig the other day. We were catching bait for tarpon fishing, and uh, I'd never seen one before. I was like, "What? What on earth is this?" Yeah. Ugly. Anyway, now I know. I'll uh, know not to let it back. I didn't let it go. I, I threw them live well anyway. I was like, well, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're something. Trivia, that's the fish uh, that's in the aquarium in the movie The Naked Gun, mm -hmm. if y'all remember that. <laughs> I've seen anyway. them before underwater. Have you really? Oh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Ran into them several times. Mac, have you, did you have a follow-up question? No, no. I, I was going to touch on the – we always hear, I mean, in our area about the Louisiana marsh, you know, losing land every day. Yes. And I was just curious of how much that has affected that fishery. And, it, I mean, if that's true. and if yeah, that Where is that? Is it is it continuing to erode or if we, if we stem the tide? That's a great question, Mac. No, it's uh, – that's another big issue. And um, – and, and I, and I worry it's, it's one we'll deal with for a long, long time. Oof. And it definitely affects the fishery. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, losing marsh in, in any fish. In, in, and we're losing marsh in many areas. It's not just Louisiana, but Louisiana is the one that is so stark and so shocking. Um, now, the encouraging side of it is there are some methodologies that have been pioneered that are helping replace that. Um, there's a thing called sort of floating islands technology. Um, it's, we've done a number of projects within our building conservation trust habitat program, um, and CCA Louisiana in particular, where they're repurposing plastic can be from literally from plastic bottles and creates these cubes and they float these cubes, they tie them all together and then they grow cord grass through them. And so imagine this grass growing through that, just suspended out in what used to be a shoreline. And as those roots grow down and reattach to the base sediment, they help start trapping sediment and then can backbuild that marsh. So there's things that can be done. They use marsh terraces in certain areas, um, but it's a big effort. I mean, it's going to take, it's, again, I put it in, 
in the category of some of these really big, difficult challenges mm-hmm. that we face, um, you know, not only just as, as anglers and, and, um, and, and ocean enthusiasts, but, but just as a species of figuring out how we help abate that and then help add marsh to restore it. So it's definitely real. Wow. Yeah, we had, a, we had a customer a few years ago. I think their name was Martin Ecosystems, and they were buying uh-huh. some of our cypress trees from us and experimenting, okay. planting them on these these islands. So uh, you are just so right on it. So Martin Ecosystems, we did our first floating island project. I want to say it was probably in 2012 um, or so, and we did it with Martin Ecosystems. Okay. They were the ones that the technology and uh, it was through some of the grants that we had gotten with um, with our friends at, at Shell, and um, to restore some of that marsh that was really valuable to anglers. So that you're exactly right. Yeah, that was really interesting the way they were doing all that. Lenny, yeah. you it's, have another question. Me? Yeah. Oh, I got lots of questions. How much time do we have? <laughs> well, not much. Yeah, I, I was just going to kind of talk a little bit more about. Uh, about the loss of of wetlands and and helping to understand that is that you know primarily because of the channelization of the rivers is it it, sediment loss it's not due to the same thing that is this dead zone right no it's 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 a lot of things i mean it's like so many things it's everything it is channelization it's you know it's just uh coastal erosion we face everywhere and then as we all know it's it's like so many things that you see, even in a terrestrial environment, once that starts to recede, it becomes susceptible to so many things. And the wave action is all that more destructive to it. Um, you know, I referenced a little earlier about, you know, that oyster restoration beget better marsh restoration. It's some of those things, too. You get dissipation of, of oysters. Now you have more free ocean or, excuse me, bay sediment. And then you also have less protection from waves and wind. It's, so it's kind of all of the above. Um, in terms of what's been our challenges. And again, it plays out in a lot of areas. Um, and, and shoreline erosion is something, particularly as there's more and more urbanization of the coastline that we really have to be aware of and make sure that folks are dedicating the dollars to, um, to try to restore those areas and protect the areas that are in place. So it's the, uh, made me think, the longer he's on, the more I think of more questions that oh, yeah. you've asked. But, uh, <laughs> Um, the rising uh, seas of the earth, whatever you want to call that, is that a real thing everywhere? I mean, because I, I keep seeing it on the news constantly that, you know, whatever sea levels are sea rising, levels are rising could, is, is that something that affects it also, or is that actually happening? Because I'll be honest with you, I'm not a, uh, you know, whatever, I'm not like anti-global warming or whatever. You know, the truth is the truth. Right. And we should seek the truth yep. and then deal with it and not hide behind either side of an agenda because of what I hate is the agendas that aren't about the truth. So if we we need to be doing something, what I do, what does make me cry is just in any way poisoning the earth, mm-hmm. much yeah. less than say whether we got global warming or not. But from your perspective, you're coming at it from purely a science perspective. Are we? Do we have a big danger of the the seas rising and the so forth right now? You know, I'm probably not the right guy to ask. I, I'm like you. I'm not. You know, I'm always open for for. To, either side of every argument 100%. because I think that's, that's the way you end up getting to the answer. There's some stuff really that looks compelling in terms of, yeah, some of this coastal resiliency really is true. I mean, we, you know, we do have real threats um, to coastal marsh. I mean, that's gotta be a part of it. I don't know. Again, I'd have to refer to some of the 
great scientists we work with. Um, and, and there's a lot of scientists working on it, probably some working under agendas, but I know yeah. there's some aren't, um, exactly. but, you know, go back, go back to the folks at A&M Corpus Christi. They do a lot of work on coastal resiliency. Right. Uh, there's some folks there that I know can speak to it far more definitely than I could. I just had to ask because I mean, <laughs> if we, if, if, you know, if we get to the truth and settlement, it's just sad that a science person would enter, go after something just for their own person to prove their own personal agenda because it's no longer science, you know. It's sad. Mm-hmm. But if we need to be doing something, I could care less. I don't have an agenda. My agenda is the earth and what's best for it and our yeah. critters, you know, Amen. and our waters and so forth. So if we need to accept the truth and do something about it, we better quit messing around and listen. You know, that's right. all I'm getting at. Yeah, no. Wow, I tell you what, we are so blessed that uh, Pat, that this Coastal Conservation Organization uh, Association is is raising their hand and fighting these battles for us. Guardians of the shoreline. That's a new motion picture we're gonna have. <laughs> Guardians of the shoreline. Yeah. No, I, I like I said, and, and and I can't say enough is that the best thing that can be done um, for for all of the goals we're talking about is forums like this. It's just making sure we're getting these themes out to people. And then I even sort of like thematically where we are right now and then let people decide. There's lots of information out there and probably one of the best things, one of the most powerful advocates, one of the most passionate advocates you can get is one who, who takes all of this information, does their own research and goes, you know what? This is what I believe in. Mm-hmm. And they become the real stewards that, that go and affect change and make a difference. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's things like this that help keep that message of conservation relevant and fresh for people. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I mean, I want to urge some of our listeners, you know, I, I would say the majority of our listeners live inland and they hunt most of the time. But uh, if you've never, if you've never had a saltwater experience, get a couple of friends together, save a little money and charter yeah. a service yeah, and go do a guy it. Yeah, that knows know. what he's doing. It's worth the money. It is worth the so money. fun. You're yes. going to want to go back. Uh, it gives you something to do in the summer besides, you know, sitting on the beach all day, which, you know, but uh, <laughs> just, 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 yep. just try it. You will love it. And, yeah, it'll uh, get in your blood, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. It Mac, will. Mac, have you learned anything today? I have. I have. It, it's a, it's a kind of ever-changing uh, race that we're trying to – to fight with these waters and i mean every little thing helps and i mean just by working with the coastal conservation i mean you can get involved i mean you can meet with your chapter i mean their website's super easy to use uh and it, i mean it's something that as vast as the sea is i mean we can make a difference in it oh, i think to mr Cox, that we, it's not just talk it proved it yes yeah, over right. you know decades as he said yeah what, I, I think too i have a, a kind of personal rule of thumb but if you if you participate in, in any form of hunting or fishing, you know, whatever species that is, there is going to be a conservation organization yeah. that supports that species, no matter what it is, whether it's fishing, hunting. So I think a good rule of thumb for anybody, like Dudley, you're saying, if someone is, just goes one time a year and charters a service and goes and catches tuna once a year, whatever it may be, you know, find whatever conservation organization supports that and donate just a little bit of money. That way you can feel good about yourself. If you take, you gave a little bit. And it may not seem like much, but I think if, if humanity gets that that mindset around things, you know, we fight a lot of the, the hardest battle in hunting is is the turkey hunting world and, and convincing those people to give back more than they take. But it, but it's with everything. But if you can convince people just, you know, no matter what it is, even if you do it once a year, you know, do it once a year, give, you know, find the organization that supports that, donate, even if it's $10 or something, 
just to, you know, because if, if everybody adopts that mentality, then it really will make a difference. Even Huge if it difference. feels small, yeah. you know, to yourself. So anyway, it's yeah. a good, it's a good, it's a great point, Neil. It's kind of like, um, you know, going to church for years and years and never tithing. Yeah. It's money a sin. Mouth, and I think he's dead on. That's a great philosophy for all of us to kind of spread mm-hmm. around. Well, what he's saying is, you know, take action. <clears throat> you know, is what it is. Don't. And it doesn't take much. That's, that's the right. thing. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much at all Join to get started. right now. Let me get your credit card. You already have, have mine. I was going to borrow it back from you. <laughs> yeah. so, so, Pat, we all when we have a guest, we like to ask them a trivia question. And it's, okay. and it's kind of a lot, you know, we pick questions that are kind of, we think that you uh, have a really good chance to answer. But if oh, you, no, Bobby can be evil. Don't let yeah. it fool you. If you get it right, one of our listeners that's left a review for us will win a prize. What are they going to win this week? So let's turn it over to Mac, and Mac, you can get this going. So, Pat, you're playing for uh, a podcast reviewer, uh, Ben Over. Oh, my gosh. What? <laughs> what? No, okay. Bob, Bobby teed that one up for me. Oh, my gosh. You're, Not again. You're, you're, yeah. Yeah. And his wife, Eileen. Yeah. All right. Stop that. All right. So Cornball All-American. Yeah. You, 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 really, you're playing for Turkey Freak 10. Now that Turkey sounds Freak like a listener Pat, right Pat gave us a good review, and <laughs> the prize will be a Country DNA Stanley Travel Mug. Not, I'm having water out of one right now. And, right I, now. and I think this might be my... My, my favorite trivia question we've done. So it's a good one with a good backstory behind it. And you can phone a friend. Don't worry. Nobody's ever gotten one wrong. And your friend can be Neil. Yeah. So yeah, right. Neil can help you out <laughs> on this one. Uh, so the 16th Chapel in the Vatican City in Italy has some of the most beautiful and old paintings known to exist. This is a true or false. There's a painting of a tarpon in the 16th Chapel in the Vatican. The 16th Chapel? Or? Sistine. Yeah. Sistine. The 16th one. Yeah. 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 There's a painting of a tarpon? So, so it's a true or false question. Uh, it, there is a, t- a painting of a tarpon in the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. True, true or false. false. Wow. I, I like that idea so much that I'm going to go and will that to be true. It is true. That is too good a question it, it, not to be true. Great job. Who researched that one? It is true. Did it's, Mr. Cole find true. that one? Yeah. And, and so I, I did a little research on this, and this is pretty interesting. So the the backstory to this, and Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong, was Michelangelo, who painted these paintings in the Vatican, was thought to have painted the tarpon as a biblical reference to Jonah and the great fish. There was no huh. reference to a whale until the King James Version in the 1600s. So uh, a tarpon that, might have ate Jonah. That's right. So I, I, found, I read across this. Uh, uh, Pat, I'm sure you've uh, heard of the book Lords of the Fly about these guys chasing the world record tarpons. That's where I uh-huh. found that. It was in there. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's no, it's great. And like I say, just, just the concept that it's there kind of makes me happy. So yeah, that's no just about it. Yeah, it does. I okay, thought that's Michelangelo good. was so, a turtle. I, so, I didn't even know. <laughs> so, so uh, what? So, so, so Turkey Freak Ten one uh, just needs to get in touch with us, yeah. and he'll get yeah. Get that, there you go, standing. Pat. Look at you. Good yeah. job. Good question. Well, guys, well, what you know, we we always when we kind of wrap <clears> up, we look around. What did we learn? I'm gonna ask Neil. Neil, tell me something you learned today. 
Yeah, I guess I, I guess I had I got a lot of uh, answers to my questions, uh, and that's not always the case. Uh, sometimes, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, but, but I resemble uh, that. I, I feel like I learned something from uh, everything I asked. No, there was no uh, empty answers. Uh, everything had a substance to it, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, yeah, just learning more about kind of the stuff that I'm directly uh, interested in. You know, selfishly, my questions were personal on, on, on what I do, uh, with my time on the waterway and stuff. And, uh, anyway, so yeah, no, I, I don't know if about any specific answers, but just kind of everything I ask, I feel like I got a good answer to. Yeah. That's how, that sounds that's kind of the way I feel about it too. And that, look from mossy Oak and mossy Oak fishing, we, we've that's got right. a big stake in all this and we no want to make sure it. we shine a light on these organizations that are, that are out there helping us. And, uh, it, and you know, I've learned a lot. I didn't realize they were, as vast as they are, I did not realize they had West Coast offices, mm-hmm. or all the way up into Chesapeake Bay. There's I, coast everywhere. Yeah, there, there's coast. There's <laughs> edge everywhere. It sure is. So, Pat, is there anything you that we didn't ask you that you think it's important you need to get the word out about? Now, I love this discussion. Like I said, I really got to compliment the questions. I mean, they're tremendously deep questions. They made they made us dig into a lot of subjects. I want to applaud y'all uh, for doing that. But again. The following you all are building, and you made the reference to folks that are that are inland that might not fish that often. Maybe they fish occasionally. Uh, maybe this will get a few of them who want to go fish. But by touching that group, you're making such a difference. And and our partnership with Mossy Oak Fishing means a lot to us. Um, our partnership with you all and what you're doing through this podcast means a lot. And it all gets down to we're all pulling in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And the more we can, you know, promote that message of stewardship and reminding people they can make a difference. I think that's one of the key things we've got to do is continue to remind people that they can make a difference because if they think they can, they will. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. yeah they're, 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 gosh, thank, it's just so you. Thank you for what y'all stand for because it, it isn't a given that you start something like this and you do make a difference like that, but it's happened and it's the fact and it's true and we're very, very grateful for everything that's transpired since you're uh, – since you started, yeah, no doubt, absolutely. So, Pat, if you want to uh, hang on, we we at this point in the show, we always kind of ask Dudley's got some kind of question. Somebody's asking him. It only takes a few minutes, but we always learn something from him. We'd like for you to join us here yeah. if you would. So, Dudley, have you got an well, Ask Dudley prepared? I do, um, and it's a it's a question I get all the Uh-oh, time. Good got gosh. the books out. The, he just uh, brought the whole library with it him. It might take more than a few minutes. I was I was. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was interviewed for a podcast with the Rolling Thunder crew yesterday, and, and one of them asked me, you know, uh, what are some books and things I can get and read to learn more about trees and plants That's and habitat great. management? Yeah. And uh, I've never really addressed that. So uh, I've just got a few. Uh, there's a lot of them. Some of them aren't in print anymore. That's but, a good uh, one right there. I want to yes. – one of my favorites uh, is really broad, but it's about trees. Uh, but it uh, it's by a, a brilliant man named Guy Sternberg uh, mm-hmm. and, and Jim Wilson, uh, guys from the Star Hill Forest Arboretum up in Illinois. But um, it is called Native Trees for North American Landscapes and, and Sternberg, and it. Uh, it's uh, I mean, it's like got a couple of big pages on each species. It tells you their site, uh, you know, all the relationships with different trees. You know, whether it would be a good yard tree or not. But it is 
uh, it's amazing, and it, it also helps you identify it. It's not the cheapest book I've got. That's a big one. But uh, you guys, when you get there reading, you can put it on the coffee table. It's one that's a to big leave one. leave on the coffee it table is at for all sure. times. It's a good looking book. Uh, another one is uh, one a, a couple one. of my Mississippi State buddies were involved in this one. Uh, and duck hunters would be interested in this. It's uh, a guide to moist soil wetland plants of the Mississippi alluvial I've, valley. I've been through that so many times. Um, <laughs> That's a great one. Too. It is. But uh, uh, Shummer, Hagee, Fleming, uh, my buddy James Calicutty, I saw him at church a couple weekends ago. He's in on this book, too. Uh, so you can uh, duck just hunters Google that. Bible. title and now, an now's the time of year to take that bible out right. there and and learn right. from it right. because um, it's happening right now for the winter uh for some of my friends that are not in the south uh there's a really good book called weeds of the northeast mm. now that one i'm not familiar um, with me neither uh one of the author's last names is uva uva so you you know just put the title and the author um it's got you know it tells you if it's native or non-native site uh Everything you need to know about weed identification. I'm not going to even um, touch that one. I'm just and, uh, on. But it's also got a bunch uh, that are in the South. Yeah. So, And uh, everybody knows about Craig Harper's book, but you need to get that, Wildlife Food Plots and Early Successional Plants. And uh, one of my first favorite ones is I love uh, that one. Miller and Miller. Forest Plants of the Southeast and Their Wildlife Uses. That's a great book. That's uh, that crew from uh, – UGA did this, and, and it's fantastic as well. So That's some those great are, material. Those are a few. Aren't we doing some kind of book club? Yeah, the Bottomland Book Club. That's right. we got that uh, going so, on, too. Well, so so our, our guest, Pat, has written a couple of books, and uh, one of them is uh, it's, it's More Than Fishing, and another one is No-Nonsense Guide to Coastal Fishing. Is mm, that? I need to pick that one up. Yeah, you're a no-nonsense kind <laughs> of guy. I'm a no-nonsense kind of guy. That's my kind of title right there. Hey, Pat, he's never read a book. Yeah, I read yours. <laughs> well, I don't know that you have because I've asked you questions before and you've looked at me with like with that look that you have sometimes. So. You get that look a lot. What else, Dudley? Is that that's, it? That's it. I mean, there's there's more books out there. Those are some of my favorites. Those we'll probably ones. add to that at a Can't later date. Can't believe you didn't have the Soils book in there, but that one is kind my of My Soils level. textbook. Yeah. yeah. Learning that chemistry is, <laughs> is important. Stuff. But – Cat ion All right, guys. Well, let's let's go. circle back around. One of that we failed to Did mention. Did you though. Mr. Know It All? There you go. The, the, That's his name. <laughs> there he is. We hope to have some merch soon that has Dudley's image with a oh, with that with no. that. Goodbye, I think Dudley. we should. Oh yeah, so, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there we go. So look, guys. It, Pat, thank you so yeah, much. Thanks for being here. All those people that that work with you at the. At, at the Coastal Conservation Man. Association, that we we want to thank all y'all. Mm-hmm. I think about yeah. all these volunteers everywhere. You know, whether it be DU, NWTF, all our yeah. conservation Huge. partners, CCA. It's just unbelievable. I just almost get just chill bumps, honestly, in gratitude for their work because they are the secret behind all of this. You know, yeah, and with that, the boots that, on the ground, too. that much love and positive energy and belief in what they're doing is what transforms things. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Great. Yeah. Really yeah. Thank you so much, Neil. You're on there somewhere. We need we need you to be productive this afternoon. The rest of the afternoon, please. <laughs> Wherever you are. Bobby can't stop preaching to you even after 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he gave me a mug one time that said "World's Best Boss." Oh, you did. Neil did. Oh, wow. I'm very sarcastic most of the time. When I, think <laughs> I knew that was a joke. 
Oh, Neil, that hurts. <laughs> I, I think he fired you a couple times, too. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he did. Oh, parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the parking lot story, yep. All right. Pat, thank you so much. Guys, it's been fun. It's Mac, been you got one. anything? Nope, we're all good. So say goodbye, Dudley. Goodbye, Dudley. Let's Get go fishing, here, everybody. Mac, Mac. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.